First, to, to help correct some, some bad theology out there, maybe some misconceptions you have about baptism, to fill in some of the gaps in your knowledge of things you've heard over the years, maybe in churches, maybe from your parents. So that's my first goal. My second goal is if you're a Christian and you have not been baptized, I want to give some space for God to move in you. I want to give some space for God to move in you, to invite you into something great and something he desires for you and to get you excited about the idea of getting baptized in two weeks. And so that's my goal. So let's, let's start with this. Um, what is the weirdest initiation ritual that you've ever been a part of? Okay, think about that. And I know some of you, if you are a part of a frat or sorority or military or anything, I know you got some weird stories in your closet. Okay? For me, there is definitely one. This one has just stuck in my head. It is permanently etched in my traumatic memory. So, this was back in high school. In high school, I joined the water polo team. Here's my freshman team picture. Little scrawny, hairless Greg. And as, as freshmen, one of the things we had to do was we had to go through freshman initiation. So if you've ever played like a formal high school, college sport, there's, there was probably some type of initiation you had to do. Ours was no diffs. Freshman initiation. And so for ours, this, this happened on the first day of school. So about 15 minutes before the first bell... The whole team, the whole, just the freshmen, sorry, just the, the whole freshman team, we had to run through the whole school wearing nothing but our Speedos. It was, it was the annual Speedo run, and everybody knew it was coming. Now, thank goodness I do not have any pictures or videos of this. <laughs> that is not anything I went floating around. But you can just imagine. Imagine this and about a dozen other scrawny, barely pubescent guys running through the halls of school in Speedos and sneakers, running as fast as we humanly could, because Speedos do not leave much to the imagination. And as a 15-year-old boy, that was just horrifying. So we ran fast. And, of course, the halls were lined with our classmates, cheering us on, much to their delight and our embarrassment. But, and you know what, it, it was terrible, but we laughed, we, because that's what you did. That was bonding. It brought us, the, that freshman class of water polo, together as one. And, you know, from that day on, we were part of the water polo team. We belonged on that team. We had, we had earned our spot on it. See, initiation rituals or rites of passage, as they're sometimes called, um, they're a universal human practice. We see them in nearly every culture and land on earth. Some are more formal, like a wedding ceremony, a Jewish bar mitzvah, a, a, a Hispanic quinceañera, and some are more informal, like, like getting your driver's license or maybe baby's first steps. 
but all of those mark the beginning, the ending of something and the beginning of something else. See, ceremonies may differ, but anthropologists have identified some consistent traits across all of these initiation rituals or rites of passage. Here are some of the things that all of them have in common. First, they mark an entrance into a new group, a new role, or a life stage. They mark an entrance. Or it represents a basic change in your existential condition. How's that? We get to start thinking about existential condition on 1030 on a Sunday morning. But it represents a change in that. Or there's usually some type of physical demonstration of commitment. They're usually done publicly. And then if they're done privately, then there's, there's a celebration publicly within the community. And then the other thing that happens is they increase feelings of inclusion or affiliation. They create a sense of belonging. And all of these rituals, no matter what they are, accomplish these things. So now, I want you to think about the initiation rituals that you've been a part of. You've either participated in, or, <coughs> excuse me, or you've witnessed. Maybe it's getting a driver's license, a confirmation, or a first communion. Maybe it's a graduation, a wedding, buying your first house. Uh, your first child, maybe that kid's first steps, military boot camp for any of you who have served, maybe a white coat ceremony for you in medicine, or maybe retirement. Those are all initiation rituals or rites of passage that mark the ending of something and the beginning of something else. So I want you to think, whether it's from this list or something else, think about something you have gone through, formal or informal. What was that like for you? That was part of why we had the question about baptism, because I wanted us to start to think about what was that like for you? And that was just one example of an initiation ritual or a rite of passage. So how how did you feel in that stage, that event, that experience? How did it change how you viewed yourself or maybe how others viewed you? Because you see, these events change us. They change us externally. They change how we relate to others and how others see us. These events also change us internally how we feel about ourselves, what groups we feel like we belong to. And baptism is no different. Baptism changes us. Now, in Scripture, baptism has a number of different symbolisms or metaphors that it represents. There there are a number of ways Scripture talks about baptism. Here are just a few of them. Being united with Christ. Sharing in Christ's death and resurrection. Dying to your old self and being raised to new life. Or being cleansed from our sin. But all four of these represent something much larger. 
They all are part of a much larger theme. And it's that theme, it's because of that, that it all falls under. It's that theme that has actually been the dominant way that the church has seen baptism for the last 2,000 years. This is the way baptism has been talked about in churches. And it's this, as initiation into the family of God. Initiation into the family of God. Now, there, there are a few definitions. There are lots of definitions that have been used for baptism. Here are just a few of them. The act of using water to admit a person into Christian community, whether as an adult or an infant, or a rite of initiation into the Christian church, or a sign and seal of belonging to God and his family. Is this how you see baptism? If not, you might be operating with some distorted, non-biblical views. You might be playing some, some bad tapes in your head. Right? And if you're a Christian and you have not been baptized, some of the, these wrong ideas might be keeping you from something that God really wants for you. And that's to get baptized. So how do you see baptism? Do you see it as an initiation into the family of God? Or instead, do you see it more as a marker of spiritual maturity? Something you work up toward, something you get yourself ready for, and then you can get baptized. So where does this idea of initiation as initiation into the family of God, where does this come from in Scripture? Well, the Apostle Paul is the one who talks the most about baptism. He talks about it a number of times throughout his letters. And, and he really has develops a fairly strong theology of baptism in the letters. And there's one thing you need to know about the way that Paul talks about baptism. There's one thing you need to know. It would be inconceivable to him to have a true believing Christian who wasn't baptized. That just did not exist. It would be inconceivable to him because every time Paul talks about baptism, there is an underlying assumption that if you're a Christian, you've been baptized. It's not even a question. That question is never raised. If you're a Christian, you've been baptized or you get baptized. So why is this true for Paul? Why, why does he see it as initiation, not a marker of spiritual maturity? Well, because he saw baptism as the starting point of the Christian faith. It's not a stair step up at some point along the way of the Christian faith. It's the beginning of it. And few passages, few passages talk about this and represent this as well as the one we're going to look at today. It's in Galatians chapter 3, and it's just two verses, 26 and 27. But it's part of a larger passage that talks about being children of God. And baptism is part of that. It is not the thing that defines us as a child of God but it is part of our 
experience, our existential condition of being children of God. And, and you, you'll see that in the passage as well. So, so here it is, just two, two verses. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you have been baptized into Christ. For all who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So, let's start at the beginning. The first phrase. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. This is the part we love. Because this is amazing. This is amazing to think that us, we, in our selfish, sin-filled, broken lives can become children of the Almighty God. That is remarkable if you stop and think about that for a moment. Now, for, for me, once, once when I was a brand new Christian, I, I'd only been a Christian a few months, and someone came up and challenged me with a question. Well, aren't we all children of God? God created us all, so then we're all his children. And I didn't really know how to answer that question. So I kind of hammered and stumbled through, and, but I didn't really know how to answer. And he kept pressing and pressing. And, and I was a young Christian, just 16 years old, barely read the Bible, didn't know anything. And he kept pressing harder and getting a little more argumentative. And finally, I just shrugged my shoulders, turned around, and ran away. And I went into my car and I cried because I felt like I failed. I failed as a Christian and I failed God because I didn't have the right answer. Well, eventually I learned the answer to that question. And the answer is actually no. We are not all children of God. In fact, Scripture says that if you are outside of Christ, you are actually an enemy of God enemy of God. And think about it. What movie have you ever seen where the villain not not just gets defeated, but actually gets adopted into the family of the hero? You know very well the new Joker movie has not ended that way. But that's what happened. We, We are the villain in the story. The through Jesus Christ God adopts us into his family, and, we, and then we become children of God. That's the power of the gospel. So this, all, this verse also contains one of Paul's most important phrases. Most important phrases about Jesus. It is the core of his Christology, which is kind of his theology of Jesus. And it's this, in Christ Jesus, or simply in Christ. You know, there are a lot of phrases that Christian use, Christians use to describe what it, mean, what it means to believe in Jesus. There's ask Jesus into your heart. There's accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's the one I grew up with. Or at least I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior into. Um, there's to be saved. Or there's to have Christ in me. But you know what's interesting? 
Those four phrases combined don't even show up in Scripture even a dozen times. The phrase in Christ is used 165 times to describe having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is probably the most biblical phrase that could ever be used to describe being a Christian. In Christ. And it represents simply being joined to Jesus Christ. In Christ. Now, before we move forward, I want to geek out on some grammar here for a little bit because I can be a bit of a grammar geek sometimes. So, the preposition in. The preposition in. This is a marker of state or position. I am in church. Good. I am in the church of the flying spaghetti monster. Not so good. I am in love. Very good. I am in love with an anime body pillow. Not so good. (laughs) I am in the band. Cool. I am in the band Nickelback. Not so cool. (laughs) So no matter what you're in, it describes your current state or position. So when the Bible says that you are in Christ... It describes your state of being joined to Christ, united with Christ. Your position, your existential position is one in Christ. Okay? It's a marker of a state or position. So now let's go to the next verse, 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now now we see Paul's view of baptism. Well, first off, all of you. Notice it doesn't say those of you who are ready have been baptized into Christ. Those of you who think it's, it's an okay time in your life or those of you who have gotten your sin together, then you can be baptized into Christ. No. All of you. And he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to a church here. All of you who are baptized into Christ. So this affirms that the, the belief that every believer should be baptized. To Paul and the early church, there was no such thing as an unbaptized believer. It's like, it's like a civil online discussion about theology. It just doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. Now, when we see this, it is abundantly clear when we geek out on grammar again. So let's geek out. We're going to look at a different preposition here. We, we have a new one, into Christ. So instead of in Christ, we have into Christ. See, the, the preposition into is a marker of a change of state. In is a marker of a position or state. Into is a change of state, change of position. So you get into trouble. 
you were okay, and then you said something stupid, and now you're sleeping on the couch. <laughs> you get into trouble. Or you come into money. You were eating at the dollar menu. Now you're ordering extra guac at Chipotle. You got guac money now. <laughs> or you run into a wall. You just need to look up from your phone. You run into a wall. So all of those represent changes in state or position. So when scripture says that you are baptized into Christ, you move. It means you start at a place outside of Christ. And then you move into union with Christ. Then you are in Christ. You move from outside into and then you're in Christ. So how does this happen? How does, how does all of this happen? What represents our existential change of position? Baptism. Baptism represents that. That's why it's such a big deal. Listen to the verse again. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now, that last phrase, have clothed yourself with Christ, there's a little bit of debate about what that really means. But one of them that seems to make the most sense in this context is it actually refers back to a Roman coming-of-age ceremony. That, that when a young man reached a certain age, he would receive the family toga. And that would, that would mark him as a full-fledged member of the family and as an adult. And in this ceremony, he would be given this toga to clothe himself in the family name. He was now a fully-fledged member of the Roman family as an adult. And I believe that's, that's the best explanation for what this metaphor means because it fits baptism perfectly. It's perfect. It's a rite of initiation, a rite of passage, where you, you put on Christ and you become fully formed members adopted into God's family. And just like that, Paul is saying that baptism is our entrance into union with Christ and Christ's family, the church. And see, and this is where you run into problems if you're a Christian and you just don't feel ready to get baptized yet. It doesn't really work that way. That's not how baptism works. That's not how Scripture talks about baptism. See, we think of baptism as a sign of spiritual maturity. That it's something we have to be ready for. And I've heard it over and over again. And I might even hear it the next week or two as I'm talking with some of you. I, I'm just not ready for it. But see, that belief, if, if, if you find yourself right now saying, oh, that sounds great, but I'm just not ready for it. 
it, explo- it, it exposes the, the faulty thinking that you have. Because what you're saying is, there's something else that I have to do to be ready for baptism. There's something else, there's some characteristic that I am missing in my life. I need to get that, then I'll be ready for baptism. But that's not how baptism works. We are ready for baptism because of what Christ did for us, not what we do for ourselves. And when we say, I, I want to follow Christ, I want to be Christian, but I don't want to be baptized, what we're essentially saying is, I want to be in Christ without ever really entering into Christ. I want my position to be in Christ, but I don't want to do the thing that marks me as entrance into Christ. It just doesn't work like that. We, we want to wear the clothes without ever putting them on. You can't do it. It doesn't make any sense. But so often we make baptism about something that we need to do. I need to get my life in order. I need to take my faith more seriously. I need to stop this particular sin. I need to be nicer to my family. I need to attend church more. I'm just not ready. It's not the right time. The only thing you need to be ready for to get baptized is believe in Jesus Christ. That's it. So there's this haunting reality about this phrase, I'm not ready yet. And what it says, if the only thing you need to be ready for for baptism is to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and if you say, you're, I'm not ready for baptism, is it possible what that means is you're not actually ready to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That at its root, that's really what's scary. That level of commitment. That level of denying yourself. And that can be kind of scary. So a famous Christian author, Max Lucado, describes baptism like this. Just as a wedding celebrates the fusion of two hearts, baptism celebration celebrates the union of sinner and saint. Excuse me, sinner with Savior. That's why we love baptisms around here. That's why we turn it into a loud, raucous celebration. Because we are celebrating the joining of sinner with the Savior. And every baptism matters. Because it represents a person. It represents a soul that God has drawn to them. That God has spoken to. That God has led. And in that ceremony, even if you've been a Christian your whole life, that ceremony represents a uniting into Christ that is different than anything else in the Christian faith. See, so Max Lucado describes, compares baptism to marriage. And I think it's a great analogy because the truth is sometimes people want to bypass marriage. 
It's called living together or sleeping together. You want to be marriage-like. You want the benefits of marriage. You want to act married, but you don't want to enter into marriage. And living together and sleeping together, those are all fake versions of marriage. Those are false, shallow versions of what the real thing is. And often we want the benefits without actually stepping into the transition and stepping into the risks and the challenges. And similarly, if you're Christian, you haven't been baptized. You're doing something God never intended you to do. It was never part of his desire, never part of his plan for you. You're trying to be in Christ without actually entering into Christ. And that's really hard because that's not the way God's designed it. See, you, that often we want the salvation of Christ without the union with Christ. You want the spiritual life without the spiritual beginning. Or you want the private benefit of Christ without the public commitment. And it just doesn't work like that. Now, I want to close by saying this, and this is really, really important. Baptism does not save you. We are saved by Christ's work, not our own. Baptism does not save you. There are some denominations that do say that baptism is required for salvation. I do not believe that represents scripture. We are saved by Christ alone and putting our faith and trust in him. And when we do that, God invites us into this amazing celebratory event called baptism. It is not our work that saves us, and it's not our work that gets us ready for baptism. It is Christ's work and Christ's work alone that makes us ready for baptism. So I close with this, uh, a great quote from famous Chinese church leader, Watchman Nee. He put it like this. Baptism is an outward testimony of an inward transformation. It's the first step of obedience for a disciple of Christ. So take that step of obedience today. If you have not get, gotten baptized, say yes to baptism. If you have questions, come talk to me after service. Sign up. We already have two people signed up, and they're really excited. If you have not been baptized, get excited for what God has in store for you in two weeks. Join me in prayer. God, thank you that you adopt us into your family. God, we are sinners. We are selfish. We are failures at this thing called life. But you love us and you sent Jesus Christ to die for us so that we could be adopted sons and daughters of you.
That is amazing. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you. And in turn, and then you've given us this amazing event called baptism, where we can celebrate what it means to, to be move into Christ and to be united with him. Lord, and so I pray that everyone here, baptized or not, can feel, can know that existential reality of, our, of yours, that if we are believers, we are in Christ. And for those who have not been baptized, Lord, plant a seed of excitement in it with them. Take away their fears. Remove their objections, their concerns. And give them a sense of wonder of the mystery of being united with Christ. So thank you, Lord. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.